Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have another Faith Seeking Freedom episode, behind-the-scenes episode, if you will. And this time, I have one of the authors, Dick Clark, on with me. Hey, Dick. Hey, Doug. How are you? I'm doing good. I am so glad that we are in finally into Chapter 4, because this is, this is one of those topics that it makes me scratch my head that people don't think past like the second thought on what we want with libertarianism. And that has to do with like, does a free society have limits? So I'm excited for us to talk about that. If you as a listener are just joining us on this podcast, you may want to go back a few episodes and listen to our episodes that sort of give you a behind the scenes on each chapter. And it'll be kind of clearly labeled. There are about three episodes separated each and kind of give you an idea of the book Faith Seeking Freedom. It's this beautiful yellow book with blue text, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. And so what we're doing here is something that's akin to like a behind the scenes, but we also want to talk about what we were thinking when we were writing it, what some of our influences are. This is also the closest thing to, hey, I wonder who wrote each question. Um, You're not going to get an exact answer on every question, but in this chapter... This is primarily Dick's answer. So we are going to talk about the limits of a free society. Now, Dick, one of the things that I find kind of interesting is that people seem to have this fear that if we live in a libertarian society, it's just going to be everybody's going to do whatever they want. There's going to be no consequences. Well, and they seem to forget all of the consequences they themselves have suffered from poor decisions they have made in the past, right? They forget that the world presents consequences even when the state doesn't catch you, right? And yeah, so yeah. It's, uh, it's sort of a funny lesson that we have to relearn. And it's because a lot of people really have come to just be trained to believe that the state is the consequence and they forget about all that other mm, stuff. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit about your influences in this sort of area of the libertarian defense, Are there specific people that you look up to get some inspiration from with respect to how you make arguments regarding, hey, there are limits to free society? Well, you know, Bob Murphy was really the first libertarian thinker that I got to spend any time with. And I met him in Auburn. And I would always call him my most significant libertarian influence. Uh, And he's really the guy who sold me on the whole bill of goods. Mm. And Bob wrote a wonderful short little uh, self-published book called Chaos Theory, and it talks a lot about how markets can provide for security and provide for defense and provide for dispute resolution. And so really from the very start of my introduction to libertarian thinking, I had hand in hand with the idea that people ought to be free from state intervention, already been presented with that, the idea that I saw as as a partner to it that there are going to be these market institutions that naturally fill the demand 
for security and for resolving disputes between people in a way that maximizes peace and minimizes the cost of enforcement, right? I mean, there, and so understanding that there's a profit motive in helping to keep the peace and to helping mend relationships is a wonderful thing to discover in libertarianism because at that point, you're not in this world of sort of punk rock libertarianism that people have in their head as this caricature mm-hmm. of us that, oh, we're, you know, it's just anti-authority men because I like graffiti, you know? <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> uh, and that's really not what it's about at all. It's the idea that we love peace so much that there are better ways to maximize peace in society. Uh, and yeah. yeah, yeah. so there are limits. And indeed, God has set limits and nature enforces those limits on uh what we can do. I remember reading Chaos Theory. In fact, I think I listened to it while shoveling snow in a snowstorm like about eight years ago or something. And I remember thinking, okay, this this all makes sense. And it really is an argument against the monopolization of institutions that are part of those limits. I mean, right now, if we take away the state, it's not like there's going to be a pandemonium. I mean, there might be in certain small areas or maybe Washington, D.C., but it's not like you and I are just going to all of a sudden start going out and doing things that are evil. There are other institutions in yours and my life outside of our personal faith convictions that are keeping us from making terrible choices. And so those institutions actually exist, and it's not even the state that keeps us from doing that. Indeed. And more than that, the state incentivizes antisocial and sort of aggressive conduct, right? And it's, it creates this uh, moral hazard where people are disconnected from the consequences or some of the consequences of their actions. And so it's not only that people are wrong about this idea that we have to use a state in order to restrain evil. I think that they discount to much too great a degree how much evil the state itself generates, right? Uh, how much evil proceeds from the state that if we didn't have a state, we wouldn't have to consider that in the count, right? Do you have anything in mind in particular? Like the first thing that comes to my mind, or which we'll talk about later in the episode here, has to do with cronyism. Like big corporations are allowed to be corrupt because of the state. Yeah, well, that's a, a huge example. But I'll be honest, uh, for me, the biggest example is war uh, and the mm. the way that wars are run. Even if you Don't look at the moral part of it, which to me is actually the most important issue. And what made me a libertarian was the idea that Bob Murphy convinced me of that war, collateral damage in war, was a violation of thou shalt not murder. Uh, And, you know, if you take innocent life, knowing that that's going to be the consequence or the likely consequence of your action and you go ahead anyway, you're guilty uh, under under the law in that way. And that, to me, is what condemned the state in my mind. Uh, And as Randolph Bourne said, war is the health of the state, right? But even leaving that moral analysis aside and looking at the economic analysis, look, I work with old soldiers, old retired soldiers, and they are the first to tell you about the pallets of money that just walk away and just disappear off into the world and the waste that goes on, even in the context of assuming that war is okay and and a worthwhile Mm -hmm. pursuit and something that, that helps promote noble ends and so on. There's just so much bureaucracy that causes these perverse incentives to come to bear and that results in in the waste, right? So even if you believe in the mission, the way that government puts it on, the way that government executes it is just so shockingly wasteful of resources. I mean, even the people who are involved in it know it. Yeah, 
Yeah. You know, I think a lot of, I would say more conservative Christians, but I, I think even more liberal left-leaning Christians would also think this too, is that in a libertarian society, a free society, whether that's a minarchist or an anarchist sort of situation, there won't be enough constraints on individual behavior. Yeah. And so there's this like fear that like, oh, and again, in my mind, well, let me finish my first thought and then I'll get to my second thought. I have a habit of doing that. That they would think, oh, well, we need to constrain, you know, the people around me so that we're all kind of good with each other, that we're all behaving according to some sort of standards or some sort of like, you know, equal basis or whatever. And that sounds all good, but the thought it's like, when I evaluate it, it's like, it sounds to me like you just want to control your neighbor's behavior. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's the way I see it. And maybe that's, maybe those tr- both are true. But there's this fear that individual behavior uh, should be limited. And I think one of the key aspects of the way we approach the book is that it's not that there are no limits. It's not that there are no other limits. The state is not the only limiter. Well, that's right. And I'll tell you from the Christian perspective, something that we hear about a lot, at least in, I think in many uh, American churches, is this idea of the weaker brother principle, right? And that we don't want to trip up the weaker brother. And so that might be a reason why we would abstain from something that might not be sinful in itself, but could, you know, lead others into sin, right? Or present temptation to others. And I think that unfortunately that often gets perverted and and we get almost this inversion of the weaker brother principle where we go and persecute the weaker brother who has fallen into sin as if we're Uh, doing that to protect the weaker brother. And it's such a perversion of the law of liberty, as it's described in the New Testament, because really that exhortation about being protective of the weaker brother is that we don't use our liberty as an occasion to the flesh, right? I mean, that that we don't indulge ourselves and have that be at the expense of, of other people's close relationship with God and our ability to be in close fellowship with those fellow believers. And so as Christians, certainly we think there are constraints on what we ought to do and what a righteous person does. And there are certain things that if we engage in that behavior, it's unrighteous conduct, Mm -hmm. right? It's an abomination before God. But what we libertarians would say is there's a distinction between the sorts of unrighteousness that ought to result in a forcible response, right? Restraint by violence, uh, by violent enforcers versus the sort of conduct that's merely immoral, meaning that it's it's unrighteous before God, but it doesn't warrant a violent response by other people. And I think that when we look at the woman caught in adultery, who Jesus saved her life, right? In, uh, in the book of John, in chapter seven and one to eight, the fact is she had done wrong and she'd even done wrong in a way that did have consequences for others, right? I mean, she had sinned against her husbands and so on. But I think Jesus was teaching us a lesson about not trying to be the avengers for violations of the moral mm-hmm. law in this way. And God is going to settle up with, with everybody on that score. And either your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, or you're going to stand to account for them yourself, right? And so that's, that's the beautiful lesson of the, of the gospel. And there was an illustration in earthly terms there of what God could do for you in, in your sin, but even leaving the canon of Scripture and going over to what we might call the libertarian canon, a very famous author, Lysander Spooner, wrote a wonderful 
essay entitled Vices Are Not Crimes, right? And he distinguishes between vices, which are things where you injure yourself, right? Do things that are sort of against your own interests or, or tend to injure you versus crimes where you violate the rights of others, right? Where you injure mm. uh, others in a way that goes against their rights. And I think that is the right way to look at it because as libertarians, we talk about the drug war being a failure, but part of that is because of the negative consequences, even as it relates to drug abuse of the drug war, right? And uh, my friend, Mark Thornton, uh, Dr. Mark Thornton at the Mises Institute wrote a wonderful book called The Economics of Prohibition. And he talked about these perverse consequences of prohibitionism that actually result in just the sorts of evils being magnified yeah, that people yeah. thought they were going to reduce. And I love the example that he uses of the football stadium. Because as a guy that went to Auburn University, which is a big football school, of course, this is just, you know, this is the hometown parable. <laughs> and, and the idea was that, you know, if you go to an NFL game where they sell beer, what are most people in the stands drinking if they're drinking an alcoholic beverage? Probably most of them are drinking beer. That's kind of the, what you do at a sporting event. At least most people do, I think, if they're drinkers. But if you go to an SEC football stadium or another college football game mm-hmm. uh, where they're not drinking alcohol, at least not licitly doing, they're not selling it in the stadium. Technically, it's forbidden. When you see someone drinking alcohol, because you still will, what will they be drinking? Will it be beer? No, it'll be the no. hard stuff. Yeah. Right? And that's exactly what happens with- Nobody puts beer in a flask. Well, it's just not efficient, right? You have a certain number of cubic inches in smuggling volume, and the penalty for getting caught is getting thrown out one way or the other. So if the cost is the same and you can magnify the utility of that flask by having more potent stuff, that's what you're going to do, right? And so what you end up with is frat guys puking all over each other because the, they get their alcohol dosing off in a way that maybe they wouldn't have done with the beer. Well- some of them would have anyway. But uh, <laughs> but the point is, it's more dangerous, right? Because of the prohibition, at least for certain of the people who are already maybe predisposed to that yeah. vice that, that we're trying to combat with the policy. And so, you know, that's the sort of thing where I want to explain to other Christians that, look, this isn't about trying to get people to do drugs. In fact, you'll have better success in getting the addicts free of that enslavement to that addiction if you can get them out of this in-group, out-group dynamic that prohibition creates, right? I mean, in a prohibited market, your whole existence, if you're a, you know, if you're a uh, intravenous drug user or some kind of terminal drug addict, your whole existence is about knowing a guy, right? It's about having a connection and having a guy that's your backup guy in case your first guy falls through because you're going to be sick if you don't get that drug. And that is a black market manifestation that turns into this unhealthy social consequence of just detachment from all of your straight friends and family, right? And just total immersion in all of the addicts. And that becomes your community. And that just wouldn't necessarily have to be the way things were in a market that wasn't a black market. And I think it'd be easier to help people out of that situation, but for prohibition. And, you know, like I come from this as, uh, you know, my dad uh, helped run a home for alcoholics in New Orleans. And when I was a itty bitty baby, you know, freshly born, the uh, guys who are alcoholics staying in the home, basically working in the thrift store for cigarette money, put together their money in a, in a card to my parents and said, roses are red, violets are blue, crusty old hobos love babies too. And all my life, <laughs> I've had the benefit from that of knowing that there's real people that we call bums, right? And those are real human beings and they've got real problems 
And as Christians, we know a big part of that is just the sin problem that we all suffer differently from. Yeah. Hmm. You know, another question that people often have, and we address this pretty directly in the book, is about being victimized. And one way of sort of addressing that is like, well, what about the safety of others? Mm-hmm. You know, like, because, and, and I can see there's a genuine concern out of, like, oh, well, if there's no laws, then like, how does my grandmother know that the medicine she's buying is, is uh, you know, safe and effective? Um, how do we know that, you know, whatever it is that we're driving or let's say, you know, and, and again, like there are people who are vulnerable to fraud, to being susceptible to, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? They're gullible, they believe anything. And so they can, they can be fooled, right? And the market would allow that. A free market would allow that, but there are non-state ways in which we can know whether or not something's actually good to buy. And so being victimized by fraud on an open market is, I mean, it's always, there's always a risk. I mean, you know, and you and I could probably lament about all the fraud the state commits on us, but aside from that, <laughs> that's just current, what I was thinking when the gullibility. Yeah, I know. I figure, yeah. <laughs> I, well, that's the thing. It's like, we, we could spend five minutes just talking about that, which I think is an important point. It's like, well, that doesn't mean that there's no fraud. It just means that it's monopolized and, you know, covered up by the fact that it's powerful. But what is out there to protect grandma from, you know, not buying <laughs> terrible drugs? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a great Following question. Following this up with our previous question is kind and, of an awkward question, yeah. but anyway. Well, I think that, you know, part of it is markets reward good reputations. And so I think that, again, in the prohibited market that we were talking about before with, you know, in a black market setting, you get, you can't sue Big Mike for selling you bunk whatever, right? Fake drugs or adulterated drugs mm-hmm. because you have no recourse yeah. to legal dispute resolution, right? I mean, that's why dispute resolution in black markets often takes the form of, you know, gunplay, right, between individuals because there is no formalized dispute resolution process that, that yeah. they're going to avail themselves of. But in a legal market setting, we do have that. And even in a radical market system where we don't have government monopoly institutions enforcing people's rights, again, there's a profit in it. And there is a profit both in providing information to people who don't have the means to analyze these sorts of problems themselves. And that might take the form of something like Consumer Reports Magazine, which is a, you know, a profitable publishing endeavor even right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a time when a lot of magazines are going out of business, I think they're still finding success because there is money to be made in helping people identify lemons. And helping people know how to wisely spend their money when it comes to a car or any number of other uh, products. Annual subscription is worth the savings in not buying a lemon and being confident in what you're buying. Well, right. And there's a rational motive why you'd go out and pick up a Consumer Reports magazine because I don't want to spend more than I have to on a car or on whatever it is. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I want to get a lot of value for what I trade those dollars for, right? You know, so that's more of the conscious consumer seeking information and finding it and applying it to good effect. But there's also a lot of behind the scenes stuff that happens where the consumer doesn't have to look for it. And, you know, you can probably go flip over your toaster right now or your microwave or all sorts of other little appliances. Unplug them before doing so. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And uh, take the coffee pot, off, you know, the carafe off the coffee maker before you flip it over. <laughs> it's a pro tip from a lawyer. Uh, And so, yeah, it probably says underwriter laboratories on the bottom, right? The little UL 
It almost looks like the little uh, symbol for kosher food that might be marked on something in the supermarket. But no, this is Underwriters Laboratory. And that has really more to do with avoiding costly litigation, right? By saying that, okay, as a manufacturer, I relied on these standards and on the practices that have been borne out by the research over here. And this particular aggregation of all these little components didn't go wrong when it was tested, right? And there's various testing and certification companies out there that really exist so that insurance companies don't have to pay out on claims, right? And so there's this whole vast ecosystem of business interactions that all have to do with preventing these harms from befalling people who might then sue. Uh, And so, again, there is a profit motive in that because Mm -hmm. if you don't get sued and you don't have to pay out damages, that means the money stays in your pocket or goes towards the next capital investment in your business or whatever it is. And so, again, we can understand why people, not just out of some kind of pathological altruism, but out of self-interested reasons, would go to these measures. And so, That has to do more with people avoiding negligence and product safety, where we have good actors who are held accountable by other good actors who have a financial incentive to to keep the game honest, right? Mm, But then you also mentioned fraud. And I do think that even as we see right now where the government does occupy the legal enforcement market with its court system, it's this monolithic state court system, even now we see substantial recourse to private dispute resolution in the form of arbitration, in the form of mediation. And in many cases, the legal systems that the state operates are ordering people to participate in those alternative dispute resolution procedures precisely because it reduces costs. It's more efficient. You get better compliance from the parties uh, at the conclusion. And so even the state can, in some respects, identify that there are better ways to do things than state ways of doing them. Uh, and the state still gets its piece of the action. Don't, don't worry about all those poor judges and, and mm. court clerks and so on. But, <laughs> uh, but even with the state giving itself the advantage in the form of a violently enforced monopoly on the, on the final say, there's still a, a flourishing market where a, a huge amount of, of these disputes are resolved in that private context And so we can already see how that could continue in the absence of the of the state monopoly system that sort of has the last say, because, again, there's a profit motive in it. And we can minimize the cost of doing business by having an efficient dispute resolution service that people feel was fair and they get a result that they're satisfied with. I don't think most people realize that there are a lot of dispute resolutions that are not state based that they have at their disposal at all times. Anytime they use a credit card. There's a dispute resolution system that's kind of built into the credit card account that they have, right? Right. There are a lot of like arbitration services that are there. If you buy and sell a business or have like a shareholders agreement with with other people in ownership of something, the first place to get a dispute resolved is usually a third party that's not the government, usually, you know, a group of attorneys or whatever. That is sort of pre-decided upon. So there's a lot of dispute resolution that can already, you know, take place. And that's one aspect of safety as well, which is, you know, shoring up, you know, risk and things like that. So there's a lot of things as a libertarian who who has sort of evaluated and considered all of the different ways that could possibly be different 
I think you and I both know that there are already existing ways in which the state isn't necessary in all manners of life. Um, and we just, you know, of course, just talked about some of those things. And so I think that's a really powerful argument in favor of libertarianism is like, well, what would happen if we got rid of the state and we didn't have this? It's like, well, well, it's kind of already taken care of. It just doesn't, you know, it's just the state's another player. Well, it's like that meme, uh, and, I, and we have to cite a meme here uh, for authority because that's, of course, course. The, the strongest kind of authority in 2021. But, you know, there's that wonderful Bitcoin meme where it's uh, just like from uh, the Matrix. It's like, are you saying that I'll be able to trade my Bitcoin for millions of dollars? And then it's like, <laughs> I'm saying that, you know, when you get there, you won't have to, you know? And, and that's that's kind of the idea that, it's not like we have to stage up this, you know, powdered wig wearing revolution and overthrow the state. And I, and this was actually the, the strategy that uh, that Bob Murphy sort of proposed to me. I, I vividly remember sitting in the car with him. He's like freshly converted me to thoroughgoing libertarianism. And I'm like, you know, all excited. Like, how do we get there? And he's like, I just think we just have to make the state obsolete where people can yep. just start ignoring it. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, yeah. it'll just be so boring that people will just won't even think about it anymore. And that, and well, that's the idea, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, Jeffrey Tucker wrote an article, I think it's called, what if they made a state and no one used it or something like that? <laughs> like it's kind of the same concept. Like we do not have to overthrow the state. We need to make it obsolete. And I think that's sort of the, I think that is sort of the end game in a lot of ways. And it doesn't have to be about violent revolution because, you know, as Christians, we're not going to be about that. Yeah. And, and let me throw in, one little more hard-pointed uh, suggestion to the listeners here. As Christians, it's not just that there are more economically efficient ways to resolve disputes than state courts, but especially as it relates to other believers, we're commanded to mm-hmm. abstain from striving against other believers before unbelievers. And, you know, as an attorney, uh, my some of my fellow attorneys, even some of them who uh, you know, regularly attend church and describe themselves as Christians would kind of chuckle at that and say, "Well, look, I've got to, you know, I've got to do the Pareto optimal, you know, thing for my client and so on." But I, I think we are called to be radical, right, and called to recognize that we're just not supposed to be avenging ourselves, especially as it relates to other believers. And there is a process for addressing an offense uh, among believers and going to the church and having the church help repair that relationship and. And so it shouldn't be an alien idea to us as Christians that we should be looking for other ways to solve problems than violence. And we should remember that the state edicts hinge on, you know, violent control of society by the people that happen to have the force majeure. And that's, that doesn't tell us about righteousness, right? The Bible tells us how, how righteousness operates, and it's not just through having the, the strongest army, right, or the toughest looking guys. Mm. Well, I don't know if there's any better way to end than than on that admonition or encouragement to Christians. So, Dick, thanks for joining me to talk about Chapter 4 of Faith Seeking Freedom. Does a free society have limits? It's a lot of fun, Doug. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. 
If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 